Welcome to the New Testament Review. Where every episode we discuss an influential piece of New Testament scholarship. That is what we usually do. (laughs) But today we have something special for you. Joel Marcus is retiring from Duke Divinity School. Uh, Most of you probably know him best from his Mark commentary. He wrote the two-part commentary of the Anchor Bible series. It is probably my favorite commentary. It's phenomenal. uh, But uh, Joel has worked on a number of things, and a thing that characterizes a great deal of his scholarship is the question of the parting of the ways between Judaism and Christianity. At Duke Divinity School this last week, Joel gave his retirement lecture. This was titled, Thoughts on the Parting of the Ways Between Judaism and Christianity. We were able to get a hold of the audio from Duke Divinity, and we thought we'd share it with you. We don't really have much to add to this lecture, but we did want to flag up some of our past episodes that might help you understand the content of this lecture. So if you don't already know what the Birkat Hamanim is or what the Aposynagogos passages in the Gospel of John are, you should go listen to episode 13, J.L. Martin, History and Theology in the Fourth Gospel. If you're also looking for more information on uh, the developing consciousness of Paul as a Jew in the, in the first century uh, in modern Pauline scholarship, you should check out episode one, uh, Christer Stendhal, The Apostle Paul and the Introspective Conscience of the West. Finally, we're preparing an episode on Paula Fredrickson, the perspective which Joel sort of critiques in his lecture. I'm an important piece of scholarship on the Gentile mission. That's enough from us. I hope you enjoy Joel's lecture. I think it's really important. And I'm really, really going to miss having Joel Marcus at Duke. Yeah, absolutely. Congratulations, Joel. In his illuminating book, Nothing Ever Dies, Vietnam and the Memory of War, the Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Viet Thanh Nguyen argues that every society remembers and forgets the past in ways that reflect its own power dynamics. The normal approach is to remember our humanity and our enemies' inhumanity and to forget our inhumane deeds and their acts of kindness. Nguyen illustrates this through the justly famous Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C., which, however, excludes Vietnamese and other Southeast Asians who fought on the American side. But he also instances the contrast in Vietnam itself between a carefully tended graveyard for soldiers who fought on the winning North Vietnamese side, who are venerated as martyrs, and the ill-kept nearby graveyard of South Vietnamese soldiers who fought on the American side, here in the South Vietnamese soldiers' graveyard. Here are the desecrated tombs far outnumber the intact tombs. And more often than not, the memorial photographs over the eyes, over the graves, have their eyes scratched out. Nothing could better illustrate the inveterate human tendency to venerate the memory of our own side and to forget and and efface and desecrate the memory of our opponents. 
Nguyen also argues, however, that in a society like ours, or even communist Vietnam, is a complex place in which the dominant narrative may begin to be challenged by a counter-narrative that highlights and takes its cues from the experience of previously marginalized groups. Now this sort of counter-narrative, to be sure, can itself lead to the distortion of ascribing all evil to our side and all good to the other side in what Nguyen calls dramas of self-flagellation. I myself can vividly remember anti-war demonstrations in which the slogans chanted included, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? And ho, ho, Ho Chi Minh, the NLF is going to win. If I joined in such chants, and conveniently I can't really remember whether I did or not, <laughs> but if I did, I'm not proud of myself. But in time, the struggle of narrative against counter-narrative can lead to the emergence, Nguyen says, of a more mature approach in which the humanity as well as the inhumanity of both sides is acknowledged. An example of this, though Nguyen modestly does not cite it, is his own novel, The Sympathizer, whose morally ambiguous but strangely compelling hero slash anti-hero is a Viet Cong spy dispatched to the U.S. during the war years who ends up back in Vietnam after the end of the war being tortured in a re-education camp. Nguyen himself has a hybrid American slash Vietnamese identity. Born to South Vietnamese parents in 1971, he fled with them to the States when the Saigon government fell in 1975. As he puts it, he was born in Vietnam but made in America. As something of a hybrid myself, I am seizing the opportunity afforded by a retirement lecture to reflect on the interrelated vicissitudes of a life, a career, and a field of study, characterized, all of them, by narrative and counter-narrative. The field of study is the interrelation between early Christianity and what used to be called, in a prejudicial way, late Judaism as if Judaism were on its last legs when Jesus burst upon the scene just in the nick of time to revitalize and transform it. This same entity is now generally termed early Judaism, although middle Judaism has also been proposed, so take your pick. My own interest in the subject and my approach to it has of course been influenced by the fact that since before beginning my graduate career, I've been a person with a foot on both sides of the Jewish-Christian divide. Although this is not the time for extensive autobiographical reflection, for that you'll have to purchase my upcoming memoir. <laughs> it seems appropriate to mention that although I did not grow up in a religiously observant family, and though my parents both professed agnosticism, they also helped found a Jewish Sunday school in their local community. And my mother lit Sabbath candles 
and my father grew up in the Jewish ghetto in Chicago in an observant household whose first language was Yiddish. At the Park Forest Board of Jewish Education Sunday School, I learned not only a smattering of Jewish history, but also a smattering of Hebrew. So that when I began to study it later in life, it was not an alien tongue. My mother taught music at this Sunday school, and though she had no formal training in Hebrew, I still remember the feeling she put into some of the songs that she taught us, such as Adon Olam, Eliyahu Hanavi, and the Jewish version of Rock of Ages, which in my opinion is far superior to the Christian version. <laughs> All of this is relevant, I think, to the theme of this lecture, parting of the ways between Judaism and Christianity, because I instinctively understood from my upbringing, secular though it mostly was, that there was something not quite right about the description of Jewish spirituality and practice I encountered eventually in Christian scholarship, especially in older Christian scholarship, scholarship about topics like Jesus's Jewish background and the reasons for the church's break with Judaism. These descriptions, I think, illustrate Nguyen's point that we tend, when talking about our own group's conflict with other groups, to remember our side's good qualities and acts and to forget the good qualities and acts of the other side. I instinctively felt that there was something wrong in the descriptions I read of the Judaism of Jesus' day, which laid the groundwork for the Judaism of subsequent centuries. Descriptions of Jesus's, the Judaism of Jesus' day as an ossified wreck in which legalism had drowned out spirituality. That couldn't be right when I saw the rabbi of my grandfather's little shul in Chicago faint dead away during the Yom Kippur service in the midst of a long petition of repentance and supplication. Not only, it seemed to me, from the rigors of his all-day fast, but also from the intensity of the feeling expressed in his passionate and exalted prayer. Nor did my grandfather, who was a quiet, gentle, religiously observing man, seem to be trying to bribe his way into the kingdom of heaven by going to shul every day and abstaining from non-kosher food, as the Christian caricature of the pious Jew would have it. And this is relevant for our theme today, because much of the classic scholarship on the parting of the ways between Judaism and Christianity was based on the presupposition that the Judaism of Jesus' day was spiritually moribund, and that therefore the new wine of Jesus' teaching could not be contained in Judaism's old wineskins. It was inevitable, therefore, according to this theory, that the daughter religion should break away from its constrictive parent. And this happened quickly and almost effortlessly, uh, especially once Paul had renounced Jewish ethnocentrism and had taken the gospel of the Jewish Gentile, of the Jewish Messiah to the Gentiles. The unsuccessful Jewish revolt of 66 to 73 CE, which climaxed in the destruction of the temple in 70, not only confirmed that there was something rotten in the state of Judea, but also sealed the fate of the form of Christianity practiced by the Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem 
which remained heavily indebted to Jewish ways of thought and practice. This is the picture presented in Otto von Harnack's classic, The Mission and Expansive of Christianity, first published in German in 1902. One of the most influential works of church history written by arguably the greatest church historian of the past 200 years. Already, however, when Harnack published his book, new currents were beginning to stir. Currents which eventually began to change scholars' views of ancient Judaism and Christianity's relationship to it. For one thing, Jews were beginning to participate in the scholarly debate about the nature of Judaism and its relationship to Christianity. And they were unwilling to let caricatures of ancient Judaism go unchallenged. For example, early in the 20th century, Leo Beck, who in the Nazi years became the president of the Umbrella Organization Defending German Jews and was eventually deported to Theresienstadt, Beck wrote a scathing review of Harnack's The Essence of Christianity, attacking Harnack's picture of a moribund legalistic Judaism breathlessly awaiting the new life that only Jesus could breathe into it. And Beck said about the way Harnack depicts Judaism here, whoever renders judgments of the sort Herr Harnack does either knows nothing about a great area of Jewish spiritual life or else has forced himself to know nothing about it. Nor were Jewish scholars the only ones protesting this sort of negative depiction of Judaism. In 1921, for example, the great Harvard scholar and Christian student of Judaism, George Foote Moore, published an important article called Christian Writers on Judaism, in which he detailed typical Christian scholarly distortions of Jewish thought. It is safe to say, however, that these sorts of positive portrayals of Judaism were voices crying in the wilderness until the Holocaust. The negative view of Judaism was simply too entrenched in Christian scholarship and apologetics, and the dissenting voices were too marginal to have much effect. It was only, so to speak, as the smoke of the crematoria began to dissipate that a less prejudicial view of Judaism and a different view of the Jewish Christian split began to emerge into general view. To the credit of this university, two of the major scholars who were involved in this reappraisal ended their careers in the religion department at Duke, W.D. Davies and his one-time Union Seminary student, Ed Sanders. Davies's book, Paul and Rabbinic Judaism, which was published three years after the end of World War II, dealt a death blow to the theory, which had been especially pop popular in German scholarly circles, the theory that the roots of the major innovations in Paul's thought lay in pagan religious movements, such as the Hellenistic mystery religions. Davies instead argued that on many subjects, Paul and the later rabbis were on the same page. Sanders deliberately entitled his book, which appeared in 1977, almost exactly 30 years later than that of his doctor father, Sanders entitled his book, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, thus broadening out the comparison beyond the rabbis 
to include earlier Second Temple Jewish texts such as the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Sanders' central insight, as most of you know, is summed up in the term covenantal nomism, in which the adjective covenantal is just as important as the noun nomism, referring to the Jewish commitment to observe the Torah or law, the Greek word for law being nomos. Ancient Judaism for Sanders was a pattern of religion in which the core conviction was that through the exodus and the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, God had established a virtually unbreakable covenant relationship with his chosen people. Through the giving of the Torah, he had graciously granted them the means for maintaining, not establishing, this commandment through fulfillment of the commandments. The people's violation of the commandments which is frequently denounced in the prophets and the historical books of the Hebrew Bible, that fractured but not, did not destroy the relationship. Disobedience led to divine judgment in the short term, but not to a diminution of God's long-term covenantal commitment to Israel. For Paul, before his conversion to Christianity, therefore, the Torah was not, as Peter describes it in the book of Acts, a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, but rather an easy yoke and a light burden, which had been given to Israel by a loving God for the purpose of showing it the pathway to life. For Sanders, it was only Paul's conversion to belief in Jesus that caused him to depart from this default Jewish position. When he became convinced that Christ was the way to obtain righteousness before God, he necessarily became convinced that Torah was not the way to attain it. As Sanders put it in a famous aphorism, in short, this is what Paul finds wrong in Judaism. It is not Christianity. I think it's important to dig deeper into why the post-World War II work of Davies and to a greater extent Sanders caught on in a way that the pre-World War II work of people like Leo Beck and Solomon Schechter and George Foote Moore did not catch on, at least among Christians. This undoubtedly had much to do with the way in which Christian theologians and exegetes reacted to the Holocaust with shame and soul-searching, asking themselves to what degree Christian anti-Judaism was responsible for the Holocaust. As illustrated, for example, by the rejection of the teaching of contempt for Judaism by the Second Vatican Council in the early 1960s. But the reassessment of ancient Judaism by Christian theologians and exegetes was also partly the result of the increasingly public role that Jewish intellectuals and academics played, especially in the US and Western Europe in the post-war period. The sorts of close relationships that Davies had with David Dauba, a scholar of Jewish law at Oxford and later at Berkeley, or that Sanders had with Al Baumgarten, who taught with him at McMaster, and also with Eric and Carol Myers, or that Morton Smith of Columbia had with Saul Lieberman of Jewish Theological Seminary across the street. These sorts of relationships were much rarer in previous generations, 
when Christian and Jewish scholars usually taught in their own seminaries or in theology departments in which theology was defined as the Christian variety. The change, therefore, illustrates Nguyen's argument that when the power dynamics in a society change, the dominant narrative may begin to be challenged by a counter-narrative that takes its cues from the experience of previously marginalized groups. As Nguyen puts it, the blast radius of memory, like the blast radius of weaponry, is determined by industrial power. And until those whose memories are left out not only speak up for themselves, but also seize control of the means of memory making, there will be no transformation in memory. Now in the years since the publication of Sanders's monograph, these dynamics have continued to evolve. As Western society has grown increasingly secular, as the grip of the classic Christian view of ancient religious history has correspondingly weakened, as more Jewish scholars have become conversant with ancient Christian sources and vice versa, and as Jews and Christians have mingled not only in, religious, in religion departments and some seminaries, but also in other scholarly venues such as the SBLAAR. Correspondingly, the dominant narrative of Jewish-Christian difference and separation has been challenged even more radically than it was by Davies, Simone, and Sanders. Particularly influential in the past 20 years has been my friend and occasional sparring partner, Daniel Boyarin, who argued in his significantly titled book, Borderlines, he argued that Christian thinkers such as Justin Martyr on the one hand, and the Tanaitic and Amorite rabbis on the other, they were not so much responding to the separation between Judaism and Christianity as they were trying to create a separation that did not exist on the ground. The ultimate expression of this position is summed up in the title of a collection of essays to which Boyarin contributed and which was inspired by his work, The Ways That Never Parted. Not sure how serious the editors, uh, Adam Becker and Annette Yoshiko Reed, are about that title. Uh, perhaps it's deliberately provocative. But I do recall that a few years ago, when Boyard was up for a job here, and he came and lectured, I was enthusing to him that you know if he came, we could teach a course together on the parting of the ways between Judaism and Christianity. And he said, yes, I'd love to teach a course on the 15th century. <laughs> but he didn't get the job, so we never taught the course. <laughs> One of the roots of this approach is a postmodern view of identity as fluid and malleable. This is clear in the case of Boyard, who has challenged previous paradigms of fixed identity, not only with regard to the Jewish-Christian divide, but also with regard to the sexual politics of the rabbis and the church fathers, and whose many books include queer theory and the Jewish question. Another important route is the desire by both Jewish and Christian scholars to repudiate past prejudicial constructions of ancient Judaism 
which have both reflected and perhaps contributed to anti-Semitism. Identifying this concern for Jewish-Christian relations in no way invalidates the conclusions that flow from it. Everyone has an ideology, though it is usually easier to see the moat in your brother's eyes than the beam in your own. But one does see things differently, depending on where to invoke a cliche of my youth, where one is coming from. And it may be that scholars who are coming from a different place, say a Jewish place, can see things others can't, just because they are tuned to a different set of passions and concerns. A prominent case in point is the way in which American history on questions such as the Civil War and the nature of Reconstruction has changed in the last few generations with the robust entry of African-American scholars into the conversation. Nevertheless, I will argue in the remainder of this talk that in certain corners of the field of early Christian and Jewish relations, there is a danger of overcorrection, and that the picture of the parting of the ways has suffered some distortions that do not ultimately serve the cause either of truth or of Jewish-Christian dialogue. Two opposite strategies, it seems to me, have been at work here, though both are in service of what Cass Sustein terms the idea of a usable past. And both proceed from the correct assumption that on the ground, the line between Judaism and Christianity was often hard to draw, especially in the earliest days of the Christian movement. What are these distortions that I am alleging? On the one hand, there has been in some quarters, I think, a tendency to minimize the tension between Jews who believed in Jesus and other Jews. This tendency has now assumed, so to speak, a canonical form in the widely praised Jewish annotated New Testament, which was co-edited by Mark Brettler of the Religion Department and Amy Jill Levine of Vanderbilt, who gave our Clark lectures a few years ago. So that's one trend, what we might call the Jewish New Testament trend, a trend that is closely allied with Boyarin's ways that never parted approach. Much of this challenge to Harnack's position, the Harnack position that there was an early separation between Christianity and Judaism, much of the challenge has come from Pauline scholars, probably because Paul is not only the earliest New Testament author, but the closest thing to a systematic <coughs> theologian the New Testament offers. And so the letters attributed to him and the stories told about him in Acts occupy a huge proportion of the pages of the New Testament. So what Paul thought on any given subject is deemed by Christian theologians to be of vital importance. And since questions of religious pluralism are so crucial in today's society, what Paul thought about other religions, and especially about Judaism, has become a major focus of concern. Now, Pauline interpretation as many here could tell better than I, uh, is all over the map. But I want to highlight here a recent tendency to view Paul's theological views as remaining squarely within the Jewish realm. According to this approach, 
which is represented by some, though not all, of the Jewish scholars writing about Paul in the annotated Jewish New Testament. Shia Cohen is a conspicuous uh, non-example. According to this approach, Paul was not a supersessionist. That is, he was not one who believed that the birth of Christianity out of Judaism had rendered the birth mother obsolete. The prominence of this view within Pauline interpretation, the non-supersessionist interpretation of Paul, the prominence of this view in recent years definitely reflects the entry of Jewish scholars into the New Testament field. Though some of the early strong, the early proponents of it, such as Lloyd Gaston and John Gager, were Christians with an interest in Jewish-Christian dialogue. Unfortunately, and I do mean unfortunately, this Jewish Paul viewpoint is, in my view, hard to defend exegetically, except perhaps around the edges, such as the end of Romans 11. The view that I'm speaking about extends Sanders's central insight that the pre-Christian Paul found nothing wrong with Judaism to the harder to justify assertion that the post-Christian Paul also found nothing wrong with Judaism. We have gone from the position of Sanders. This is what Paul thought was wrong with Judaism, that it was not Christianity. To the position of Gager, Gaston, Mark Nanos, Paula Fredrickson, and my own doctoral advisee, Matt Thiessen, that Paul found nothing wrong with Judaism, either before or after his conversion to belief in Jesus. According to this reading, Paul thinks the Torah is still the way of salvation for Jews. What Christ has done is open up a parallel pathway for Gentiles. These interpreters then end up ascribing to Paul a two-covenant position that looks suspiciously similar to that of the influential early 20th century Jewish theologian, Franz Rosenzweig. Now, I reverberate with this position theologically. I would happily attend a Rosenzweigian synagogue or a Rosenzweigian <laughs> church, but I don't think it is exegetical of Paul who in one important passage describes himself, and he was a Jewish Christian, he describes himself nevertheless as not bound to observe the ritual demands of the Mosaic Torah. He could do so or not, depending purely on whether he was associating with Jews or non-Jews. But to observe the Torah when it's convenient, and not to observe it when it's not, is not the default position of religious Judaism. In fact, Jews such as the Maccabean martyrs had died rather than, than transgress the law when it was not convenient. In Galatians 3 and Romans 3 to 4, moreover, Paul stresses that salvation is by faith in Jesus or the faithfulness of Jesus. I don't want to get into that silly. <laughs> salvation is by faith in Jesus, not by works of the law. And in Galatians 4, he portrays the Sinai Covenant in diametrical opposition to the liberating portrait of Sinai in Judaism. Paul portrays it as a covenant that leads to slavery. Now, already in 1985, John Gager, building on the work of Lloyd Gaston, responded 
that Paul's letters are addressed to Gentiles. And he extrapolated from this truism to the unwarranted conclusion, in my view, that what Paul says he thinks applies only to Gentiles. So that for Gaston and Gager, and latterly for Nanos, Fredrickson, and Thiessen, Paul is claiming that Gentiles should not take on themselves the yoke of the law. But according to them, he thinks that Jews should continue to observe the Torah. But this ignores not only Paul's own example, but also the negative way in which he depicts Mount Sinai, the birthplace of the Torah in Galatians 4. Now, Gaston and Gager are able to argue their two-covenant position only through paraphrases of critical texts that insert the most crucial terms in square brackets. For example, a Gentile human being. So he, they put in the word Gentile there. A Gentile human being is not justified from works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Christ. This is a sleight of hand that Jeff Syker here already exposed with a brilliant knockout punch shortly after Gager's book was published 20 or 30 years ago. In my opinion, then, the two-covenant interpretation remains in the realm of things we wish Paul had said, but unfortunately he didn't say. <laughs> it does reflect important changes in our society, and those changes are to be applauded. But in my opinion, this sort of wishful exegesis will in the end convince only those who want to be convinced, not the intolerant Christians who are its ostensible targets. Now, despite my skepticism about the way in which the ways that never parted position has been applied to Paul, I do think there's an important insight undergirding it. Namely, things were very mixed up in the early centuries, and the line between Jew and Christian was not always easy to discern. This is not a, a new insight. Indeed, the thesis of Marcel Simon's magnum opus, Verus Israel, which was originally published in French in 1948, is that in some areas, Judaism remained a lively competitor with Christianity, and Jewish Christianity was a significant movement within the church until the fourth century, when the Emperor Constantine declared Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire and banned conversion to Judaism and instituted other anti-Jewish measures. Some of my own work in recent years has furthered this argument by investigating second and third century Christian sources, such as the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, the Didascalia Apostolorum, and the Gospel of Peter, to flesh out our picture of Christians who still maintained a strong sense of belonging to Israel and commitment to the Jewish law on into the fourth century thus messing up the neat dichotomy between Jew and Christian, which still distorts so much research in our field by imposing a modern binary on an ancient situation that was often anything but binary. So that while the ways that never parted may be an exaggeration, it is an exaggeration that points towards an important truth. Maybe we should speak instead about the ways that took a long time to part in certain places. <laughs> <laughs> or
or to cite the title of the fest trip which three of my former graduate students flabbergasted me with last year, and which some of you contributed to. The ways that sometimes parted. <laughs> That's not as catchy as the ways that never parted, so it won't sell as well. But in my opinion, it's closer to the truth. Now, aside from the ways that never parted approach, the other major development that reflects the modern concern to combat anti-Jewish interpretations of ancient Christian history is an interrogation of the portrayal of persecution of Christians by Jews in some early Christian sources. There has been a tendency to ascribe such portrayals not to actual clashes on the ground between Christians and Jews, but to, to an attempt by elite Christian authors to create a stable religious identity through distinction from an imagined Jewish other. In this scenario, Christian accounts of persecution by Jews are denied a foothold in reality and ascribed instead to the needs of Christian identity formation and even Christian paranoia. We might call this the crazy Christian anti-Semite trend. And it corresponds to a degree to the thesis of Candida Moss's recent book, The Myth of Persecution. I will illustrate this crazy Christian anti-Semite trend through some recent interpretations of the Gospel of John, though I might also follow the development on into the patristic period in the work of scholars such as Tina Shepherdson, who wrote a dissertation here on Ephraim the Syrian's anti-Jewish writings, and Miriam Taylor, who argues that in general, the church fathers who wrote against the Jews lacked personal contact with them. But in the interest of time, I will concentrate on John. The Gospel of John has posed a major problem for efforts at Jewish-Christian dialogue since it is simultaneously the favorite gospel of many Christians and arguably the most anti-Jewish writing in the New Testament. In this writing, the Jews often becomes a technical term for the enemies of Jesus. And Jesus himself goes so far as to charge that the Jews belong to their father, the devil. So we are not far from medieval and modern Christian polemic in which demonic Jews killed Jesus and have deservedly suffered for it ever since. Now, my teacher, Lou Martin, famously diagnosed, though he pointedly did not excuse, this fierce Johannine language as a reflection of the charged situation of John's audience, which he called the Johannine community. Martin called particular attention to three passages in John in which Jews are described as putting Christians out of the synagogue if they publicly express their belief in Jesus. In fact, John even invented a new Greek word, aposunagogos, to express this concept. For Martin, this depiction of Messianic Jews being thrust out of the synagogue for mere belief in Jesus does not fit the situation of Jesus' own time around 30 CE, or the time of the earliest church, it reflects rather the changed situation in the period after the Jewish war against the Romans and the destruction of the temple in uh, 70 CE. In this post-war period, according to Martin, 
the Pharisees, who before the war had been just one Jewish sect among many, became the predominant party. And they were tasked with the Romans, by the Romans, with picking up the pieces from the revolt. John, writing near the end of the first century, reflects, according to Martin, this changed position near the end of the century, in which the Pharisees' successors, the rabbis, tried to pull the people together by defining more carefully who was a Jew and who was not, according to the principle of the famous two synagogues joke. I've been telling this joke for like 30 or 40 years in my classes, and I'm sure that one of my students in the early days was Lauren Stuckenbrook, and he told it to Martin Hengel, and then showed up in a book by Martin Hengel. So, <laughs> really kind of pissed off about that. Uh, anyway, so here's the joke. Uh, there's this Jewish guy, and he's on a uh, boat, uh, which like goes down in a storm. He manages to swim to a desert island. He's the only one who survives. And he's on this desert island you know, for like 20 years or so. And, and finally, another boat passes by, and he manages to signal the boat, and so they come and they take him off the island, and he's saved. And but he, before he leaves the island, he says to the captain, uh, "Well, would you like to see what I've done uh, with my island?" And the captain says, "Well, sure." And so he shows him around. He said, "Well, okay, this is my little grass hut, you know, which I built with my own hands, and and here is my uh, shed where I keep my tools, and which I've made with my own hands out of rocks and sticks, and you know, bound together by twines. And and over here are my two synagogues." And the captain says, well, two synagogues. You know, why do you need two synagogues? There's only you know, one guy on the island. He says, oh, well, this is the synagogue I go to, and this is the synagogue I wouldn't set foot inside. <laughs> so it illustrates the point. You know, you know, that, uh, part of deciding who you are is deciding who you're not. And according to this reconstruction, one thing that the rabbis decided was you couldn't be a Jew and a Christian at the same time. Now, my teacher, Lou Martin, linked this rabbinic decision to exclude Christians and these aposunagogos, out of the synagogue texts in John, with something called birkat haminim, a curse against heretics, which according to a famous passage in the Talmud was inserted into the Shmona Esrei, the 18 benedictions, the statutory Jewish prayer, was inserted into the statutory prayer towards the end of the first century during the so-called Council of Yavne at the behest of Rabban Gamaliel, the leader of the rabbinic movement in Palestine. So he asked that this blessing, or actually cursing of the heretics, be inserted into this prayer. A later rendition of this benediction found in the Cairo Geniza and published by Solomon Schechter at the end of the 19th century, specifically curses not only heretics in general, but Nazarenes, Nozrim, that is, Jewish Christians in particular. Martin's theory is that the Aposunagogos texts, the texts in John about being put out of the synagogue, reflect the introduction of this curse, Birkat Haminim, into the synagogue liturgy. And this would have had the effect of smoking out and excluding Jewish Christians from the synagogue and from the Jewish community in general on the principle that they would be unwilling to curse themselves. Now, Martin's theory has been tremendously influential in Johannine studies. 
but it has also come under attack from Jewish and Christian scholars, particularly for his use of Birkat Haminim, though also in recent years for the whole idea of a Johannine community. Some of this attack on the idea of a Johannine community is, an, I think, a defensive move by evangelical scholars such as Richard Baucom, who want to uphold the historical reliability of John as eyewitness testimony and therefore don't like the idea of a Johannine community, which has filtered the Johannine revelation through a later uh, lens. I'm not sure this diagnosis applies to the recent challenge from Hugo Mendez of UNC, who is here tonight, and whose closely recent paper I read last month. All I'd like to say to you, Hugo, is that I still don't see what you do with the Aposunagogos texts, which were the fulcrum of Lou Martin's analysis. But we don't have time to debate, to give you a chance to respond. <laughs> Now I want to focus on Birkat Haminim. Influential articles have been written by my old colleague at Boston University, Steve Katz, and by Ruven Kimmelman of Brandeis, questioning whether Birkat Haminim was directed at Christians or had the smoking out effect that Martin imagines. Kimmelman's article significantly is entitled Birkat Haminim and the lack of evidence for an anti-Christian Jewish prayer in antiquity. Behind Kimmelman's title, I suspect, and much of the attack on Martin's thesis, lurks the fear that if it was thought that the Gospel of John reflected an authoritative rabbinic decision to exclude Christians from the synagogue, and if this exclusion was accompanied by persecution of Christians, even unto death, as John 16, 1-4 seems to imply, if that was shown to be historical, then anti-Semites might say that subsequent Jew Christian persecution of Jews was just payback for this and other instances of early Jewish persecution of Christians. That's, I think, the underlying fear, and it is not entirely paranoid. Since Birkat Haminim was first translated into Latin in 1239 by a Jewish convert to Catholicism, its relevance to early Christian history has frequently been asserted by anti-Semites and denied by Jews and their defenders. But beyond such anxieties, there are some legitimate scholarly reasons for questioning aspects of Martin's reconstruction. In the 50 years since he published his book, scholars of ancient Judaism have become more reluctant to use rabbinic traditions, such as those about Yavne, to reconstruct historical events. And many have become skeptical of the assumption, which rabbinic traditions themselves put forward, that the rabbis ran the show, including the synagogues in post-war Palestine. Indeed, I myself have contributed to this skepticism in a small way, since I have pointed in another article to a passage in the Talmud that mentions Minim, that is heretics, who recite only 17 benedictions, not 18. And I argue that these are probably Jewish Christians who are resisting the rabbinic imposition of Birkat Haminim. But Katz and Kimmelman have also raised questions about whether Birkat Haminim originally targeted Christians, as opposed to other sectarian groups, especially since it is called 
Birkat Haminim, the benediction against the heretics, not Birkat Hanotsrim, the benediction against the Christians. Our earliest manuscript versions of this benediction, which come from the Cairo Geniza, do mention Christians, but these are manuscripts are from the late 9th and early 10th century. However, despite all these challenges, I would still defend the basics of Martin's reconstruction. Well, he's my teacher. <laughs> in fact, I not only would do so, but I have done so in print. In an article that was published 10 years ago in the journal New Testament Studies. I don't have time to sum up all my arguments here, but one important one that I borrowed from Wayne Meeks at Yale is that although the rabbis may not have run everything everywhere in the late first century, they may have run some things in some places, including John's locality. So see again the title of my festrip, The Ways That Sometimes Parted. Moreover, in trying to reconstruct what was going on between Christians and Jews in the late first century, you just can't ignore what John and other early Christian sources have to say. These sources are, of course, biased and often infected by what Martin called the virus of anti-Semitism. But all our ancient sources about early Christianity in relation to Judaism are biased. If we eliminated all biased sources, we had, would have nothing left to work with. In particular, a passage such as the beginning of John 16, in which the Johannine Jesus prophesies that his followers will be put out of the synagogues and that those who kill them will think that they are performing service to God. This passage is hard to understand, except as an after-the-fact prediction of what at that time was actually being experienced by John's local Christian community. This is especially true because this supposed prophecy concludes with the words, but these things I have said to you in order that when the hour comes, you re may remember that I said them to you. As part of a farewell discourse that stands under the rubric of let not your heart be troubled, this after-the-fact prophecy seems patently designed to comfort those who have experienced expulsion from the synagogue to reassure them that their troubles should not cause them to waver in their faith to Jesus, since he foresaw and warned them about exactly what they are now experiencing. Just as the prophecy in Daniel about the great tribulation at the end is probably a picture of what the author himself was experiencing in the Maccabean period. In the similar instance of the Johannine prophecy of persecution, I think it's not just a matter of Christians having a martyr complex. Behind the martyr complex, there probably stand, or rather lie, real Christian martyrs. Now, what is most striking to me about my article is the way it has been ignored. <laughs> Despite being in a prominent journal and addressing a much discussed question, Scholars routinely still cite the old arguments by Katz and Kimmelmann, which I take apart piece by piece. <laughs> they cite Katz and Kimmelmann as establishing the non-existence of an 
anti-Christian Jewish prayer in antiquity. I may be right or I may be wrong in my rebuttals, though I think I'm right, but the fact that people have not tried to refute what I say in a systematic way, but for the most part have passed over my arguments in silence, suggests to me that something else is going on here than an objective scholarly evaluation. Rather, I suspect that the silence about my work is akin to what Philip Alexander calls the loud silence of the rabbis about early Jewish Christianity in general. Alexander says, by largely ignoring the Christians, the rabbis denied Christianity what in modern, modern jargon would be called the oxygen of publicity. Now, from one point of view, this sort of attempt to pass over an instance of early Jewish persecution of Christians is entirely understandable. After all, there is no parity between the way Christians have persecuted Jews over the past 18 centuries and the way some Jews may have persecuted some Christians in the early fraught years that saw the disintegration of the Jewish state, its liquidation at the hands of the Romans, and the birth of the Christian movement in a shell-shocked society reeling from the loss of its central unifying institution. For most of the 2,000 years since then, the power and the wrong perpetrated has been asymmetrical. The situation is somewhat similar to what Viet Thanh Nguyen describes with regard to the aftermath of America's Vietnam experience. While some American veterans and peace activists and concerned civilians have visited Vietnam to attempt reconciliation with the Vietnamese people, they have mostly not used the language of forgiveness in approaching them. Perhaps Nguyen suggests because they know they had no standing on the moral high ground to forgive. So too, it may be that Christians have no standing on the moral high ground vis-a-vis -vis Jews, and that it would be insensitive for them to call Jews to accept a share of the responsibility for the bad blood that infects not only early Christian portraits of Jews, but also the rare portraits of Jesus and Christians in Jewish writings. But as Nguyen emphasizes, those who have seen the horrors of war, or I would add other forms of violent conflict, including religious conflict, those who have seen such things cannot stop the past from haunting them until they school themselves to remember not only their humanity and their enemy's inhumanity, but also their own acts of inhumanity and their enemies' occasional acts of kindness, no matter the power imbalance and the lack of parity. Nguyen applies this sort of restorative calculus equally, though not in equal measure, to the numerous atrocities committed by the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong on the one hand, and to the far more indiscriminate slaughter wreaked on the Vietnamese by the Americans and their allies on the other. Excavation of such memories is a painful process. It unearths disgusting things, things we would rather forget. 
not only about our enemies, but also about ourselves. At the end of his book, Nguyen links this painful process to the Vietnamese practice of exhuming the bones of the dead for secondary burial, an overlap with an ancient Jewish practice that was a central object of Eric Meyer's dissertation. Here is the final and to me very moving paragraph from Nguyen's book. I think back to my father's father and what happened to his remains. The Vietnamese believe a person should be buried twice. The first time in a field removed from home and village, the earth eats the flesh. The second time, the survivors must disinter what remains. If they have timed it correctly, there will only be bones. If they have timed it wrong, there will still be flesh. Regardless of what they find, they must wash the bones with their own hands. Then they bury the bones once more, this time closer to the living. It seems to me that whether we are Christians or Jews, or in a double way for those of us who are both Christians and Jews, we must dig up the bones of our conflicted past, no longer trying to keep them at a distance if we want them to stop haunting us. This will be an upsetting process. It is not by chance that we have buried these skeletons away from the village. And in some cases, the rotting flesh is still clinging to the bones. Nor should our goal be to destroy the skeletons once we have unearthed and examined them, or to remove them again to a distance. In effect, to forget either the injuries our loved ones have suffered or the injuries they have afflicted. No. We need to proceed in a manner similar to that of the Vietnamese villagers described by Nguyen, to examine what has been uncovered, to treat it with the acids of research and reflection, and to return it purified to the mausoleum of our collective memory. Only thus can we hope to rest in peace and let our ghosts be put to rest. I trust that some present in this room this evening will play an important role in this process of exhumation and reintegration. Some of you have already done so. God willing, I will continue to do so too, now that I have been delivered from the three A's, the unholy trinity of administration. <laughs> Though, in truth, I never did that much. <laughs> Secondly, assessment, that is, rating. I did a, more of that than I wanted to. And aggravation, in other words, faculty meetings. <laughs> so we have come to our own parting of the ways. Thank you very much for your attention. Okay, that's all. Thanks, Joel. Thanks, Joel. 